Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Artworks representing animals, real or imaginary, religious or secular, span the full breadth and splendor of Japanese artistic production. As the first exhibition devoted to the subject, The Life of Animals in Japanese Art covers 17 centuries, from the 5th century to the present day, and a wide variety of media. At the symposium, held on June 7, 2019, in conjunction with the exhibition, Daniel McKee focused on the importance of historical context in interpreting Japanese art. The first part of his talk demonstrated the value of adding iconography and the circumstances of production to the aesthetic analysis of a single work from the exhibit. The second and main part outlined chronologically the history of animal representations in Japanese painting, finding that social and political interest outweighed the commonly assumed Japanese love of nature. Hi, I'm Dan McKee from Cornell University. Um, before I start, I'd better put on my scholarly disguise. There we go. Um, it has been about a, two years now that I've been needing these reading glasses, and uh, it's made me think a bit about, well, about getting old, um, but also about vision, how we see uh, things. Um, now that I have two distinct ways of seeing near and far vision. So I would like today to try to take that as a metaphor and use that for ways of looking at art. Um, now, when I'm talking about looking at art, uh, I really mean what sort of processes do our minds and our eyes go through in order to make sense of artworks, um, to feel out their essence? Uh, what basis do we use for our determinations of interest and quality or for judging the significance of a work of art? So in breaking this down, I would like to use the idea of bifocal vision um, and a little nod to one of our founding fathers here, um, Franklin, actually a Philadelphia guy, sorry, not a DC guy, but honored here uh, in DC, um, uh, is actually the creator of bifocals. And so I'd like to use bifocals as a kind of metaphor for how two ways that we can look at art. So on the one end, we'll have what uh, I'll call the nearsighted view. Um, this positions you, the viewer, your knowledge, your worldview, your values, your priorities as the ground for all apprehensions and judgments. It's the operation of the artwork on you, the viewer, right now that matters. Your job is to feel out the artwork, analyze its properties, try to understand it from your place, your perspective, your structures of meaning and significance. But there is another type of lens as well that takes the long view, um, placing work back in its historical setting, trying to intuit uh, the world of the maker and the audience. Why was the work made as it was and for what type of person? How did the work conform to or advance um, the standards of its day? What period values and emphases can we see in the work? And how did audiences at the time receive it and appreciate it? So let me just say this is not a question of either or, better or worse. We all need our bifocals. Um, both lenses, I would say, are necessary for looking at art. Both provide useful, complementary, and equally valuable types of vision, because one view can powerfully inform the other. 
I think in the opening of the catalog for this ex exhibition, there's a very strong assertion of the value of the nearsighted view um, in this text. A shortcut to understanding Japanese art is simply to follow one's own sensibilities and encounter these works in an open and direct manner. I think this is an assertion of some of the universal properties of the works in this show, emphasizing feeling or sensibility as the heart of Japanese art. What it means is that even for a viewer unaware of the complexities of Japanese cultural structures, if you open up and you tune in to works with your own sensibilities, you can intuit the core emotions on which they're based. And this is precisely the value of the nearsighted view, as well as the magic of encountering an expression from the deep past that still speaks clearly to us today. Um, my talk, however, will be based on the opposite shift of lenses. I'm going to urge the complement of a grounded contextual view in informing our contemporary understanding of historical works of art. I think holding exclusively to that nearsighted perspective, valuable as it is, um, can potentially lead us into two types of misreadings. And the first would be cultural. Um, this means it could mean uh, either projection of yourself onto the other, saying, ah, it's just like me, I get it, when actually the work might be based on something entirely different, or the assumption that others are necessarily different and they have something special different from you. Um, the second danger of holding only to the nearsighted view is, and this is a DC special, um, anachronism. So unwittingly casting your assumptions back onto the past. Um, and such misreadings can be easy to fall into if we do not use our distance lenses. So as an example of how we can use a bifocal view, I'd like to examine this 19th century painting that is from the show, but it's not in this installation, uh, I learned, unfortunately. Um, the subject is a woman holding a pet cat. So using our contemporary eyes, our contemporary sensibilities, we can appreciate the bright colors of this paintings and the contrasts, rusty maple leaves on the blue water pattern of the kimono tied with a bright red belt, and the cat itself is actually dressed in a bright scarlet uh, shibori pattern coat. The woman appears elegant in this rich kimono with her well-dressed hair. Her expression is cool and slightly imperious. Um, not entirely unlike that of the somewhat resistant cat that she holds. And her close relationship to this cat is suggested by the way that she dresses, holds, and pets the animal. So we might conclude that this painting concerns the nature of their relationship, the way that animal life is brought into the human realm, maybe the dynamics of wildness, control, and resistance, or even how pets reflect on their owners and owners on their pets. Um, and I, I think these nearsighted interpretations are not off target, um, but the work only comes into clarity when we put on our distance lenses. Um, so first we can place this painting stylistically within the ukiyo-e genre, which uh, featured bright, highly idealized, appealing portraits of women of the pleasure quarters, implying that the woman in this portrait, for all of her sense of elegance, is in fact most likely a sex worker. As evidence of that assumption, the scarlet shibori pattern on the cat's clothes was a common marker in ukiyo-e of female eros and associated almost exclusively with courtesans in ukiyo-e. Um, while cats um, 
are typically uh, used to refer to female sensuality and the kept life of a woman in the pleasure quarters. The um, image on the left here uh, shows a courtesan's dressing table with a cat um, reflected in the lacquer. Um, additionally, the very term cat uh, was used at this time as a slang term for prostitutes. So there's a second level to this painting as well. Ukiyo-e frequently employed a conceptual apparatus called mitate, in which the gritty, low forms of everyday urban reality were seen through the high forms of vaunted court culture, an iconoclastic clash that tickled the sensibilities of Edo patrons. So here, the pattern of floating maple leaves on the water in the woman's kimono is a clear reference to one of the uh, six jewel rivers, the Tatsuta River, um, which was immortalized in a celebrated uh, waka poem. Knowing this, we can see the woman as indeed refined and elegant, and her white powdered, white powdered face and hands, potentially those of a court lady, uh, as well as an aging streetwalker. Finally, um, I think you can see images of women with cat throughout Ukiwe to refer to um, the third princess, who was the ill-fated final wife of Prince Genji from the courtly classic. The third princess uh, exposed herself unwittingly to male view when she chased her pet cat out from behind her concealing blinds, and this led ultimately to an illicit love affair with a courtier who saw her revealed form and was smitten. She was a frequent subject of ukiyo-e mitate. So considering the period iconography then, we can deepen and, and alter our initial impressions, getting a sense of the manner in which the female figure must have delightfully straddled the line between a cool, uh, courtly beauty and a hardened streetwalker for a viewer of its time, as well as how the cat functions to identify the woman and her cool, aloof stance, which was actually an attitude uh, popular in courtesan portraits of the early 19th century. Now, how we interpret that, what we do with the values, the priorities, and the preoccupations of ukiyo-e painters and patrons is another matter entirely. And this is where we might need to put those near-view lenses back on. Um, once I introduced ukiyo-e to a class of students who could not get beyond what they saw, and quite rightly as the outrageous male chauvinism in the society of the time that produced such works. Um, in many cases, it's difficult for us to know um, what to uh, make of the past or to accept it even when we do understand it. Just as a quick example of that, I wanted to look at an animal-based theme that's not represented in the show, but probably for good reason. Um, it's based on a subject in mass-produced souvenir paintings called Otsue, in which blind uh, people are harassed by wild dogs or street dogs. Um, such images in the late 19th century, or actually from the, throughout the 19th century, were considered the, uh, the height of comedy. Um, but today, most of us would feel pretty uncomfortable with the idea of ridiculing uh, the problems of the visually impaired. So it's probably no accident that no work like this is in the show. Um, but it does reveal some of the challenges of the past, which you know, is a different construction of reality than the one that we're accustomed to. And it might be hard for us to accept. I still think we need to put it in its context and try to understand how did that society um, come to view this as acceptable. 
Okay, so um, we've seen the value of the bifocal view for an analysis of, of a given work. Um, what I'd like to do in the second part of this talk is put on our distance lenses to try to contextualize some larger issues. Um, and specifically, I'd look, like to look at the status of animal representations in reference to the often made claims of a Japanese love of nature or a deep harmony between man and nature in Japan. As you can see, um, this idea of the Japanese at one with nature um, is a very common one. Um, it was probably formulated in the 19th century by uh, European commenters, but very uh, quickly um, imported back into Japan as a source of national pride and uniqueness. And frequently we're told the relationship between man and nature is different, more harmonious than in the West or in other parts of the world. Or as the director of that uh, little museum down the road called the Freer put it uh, some 40 years ago, nature and Japan sound alike to the initiated. And to these enlightened people, they are synonymous. So often this is attributed to um, Shinto, the, the um, native uh, Japanese religious practices, with, which actually only become unified under the name Shinto quite later. Um, in modern Japanese philosophy, the, the prominence of nature in, in Japanese culture has been attributed to ancient agricultural practices and the influence of the climate, the distinctness of four seasons in Japan and other natural conditions. Um, but when we put on our distance lenses, we can see, of course, that Japanese culture isn't just one thing. Each of these works featuring dogs, uh, for example, were made under radically different circumstances for very different people with very different expectations. Although our recognition of the common theme ties these works together now, there's really very little other continuity between them. <laughs> Now, that's not to question the major role that animals play as subjects in Japanese art, which this exhibition does a fantastic job of capturing in its many rich layers. Um, in fact, exploring the ways that, the many ways that animals have impacted human life in Japan, this exhibition may make the familiar Japan equals nature formula difficult to question. Isn't an explicit reverence for and appreciation of nature on display all over this show? Now that said, when we try to, to place animal representations in terms of an appreciation of nature itself, even works from this exhibition raise many issues. So for example, what are we to make of real animals existing in Japan whose ordinary appearances and actions are overwritten by human concerns? We've seen some great um, examples of that today. Um, or again, real animals, Rory touched on this in great detail, um, but not present in Japan, and so not part of a Japanese nature. Or animals quite patently born from creative acts of transposition and imagination. And again, legendary creatures whose existence derives only from shared lore or religious belief, not from nature at all. Now, to avoid anachronism, it is important to realize that for pre-modern Japanese, the distinction between a real and an imaginary animal was far from clear. A great many animals of both types occupied a gray zone of potential existence, while the periodic introduction of shockingly real exotic animals from abroad doubtless made anything seem possible. But the key point is that most of the animals I've just shown were unseen in Japan. 
They were simply not part of a Japanese nature to be appreciated in its visual forms, or else their visual forms strayed very far from their natural ones. So the question is, if not the world of nature, then exactly what do these representations of animals signify in Japanese art? And what does that say about nature, the meaning of nature in Japan? So I'll try to uh, approach these questions by focusing in on the, medi uh, the medium of painting. Um, but given the range of things in this show, I'm afraid I'm going to have to take a very broad brush to about 800 years of painting, so bear with me. Um, but I do want to bring out some of the trajectories in animal representation. So what, again, when we put on our distance lenses and we add the dimension of chronology to the paintings that now appear side by side in the show, when we put them in the context of their makers and their audiences, we begin to see that animal representation in painting is not at all consistent. Rather, animals chosen for depiction in different eras were selected for particular reasons which have much more to do with social and political concerns than with the world of nature. Um, we'll also see that the use of animals as subjects for paintings expanded uh, continuously over time, peaking in the 19th and 20th centuries, and likewise, the range of animals thought suitable for depiction likewise expanded dramatically over time. Um, and it was interesting to hear Rory's talk to think about all the animals that are never depicted uh, or not depicted at, until the 19th century. Um, over time, too, we'll see different animals favored as ideal subject matter uh, by different schools of painting. Um, and you'll probably also note in this show that most of the detailed naturalistic depictions of animals, maybe with the exception of birds, who were a real uh, focus, date from the late 18th century or after, um, while various forms of stylization dominate before then. And I would say that these changes clearly indicate shifts in human ideological concerns and ways of sight and representation, rather than direct, um, directly reflecting any actual transformation of the natural order in Japan. So let's start a quick whirlwind tour of Japanese painting. Well, let's jump back a thousand years or so to the world of the Heian Imperial Court. Um, court culture is often said to be the locus of the, um, what shall I say, the non-imported um, vision that, of culture that involves nature um, quite heavily in visual and literary depictions. Um, but when we actually focus in, um, the, the character of that engagement with nature requires some interrogation. So in point of fact, the courtier lived at more of a, of a remove from nature than anyone else in Japan at that time. And court ladies who rarely left their father's houses even more so. Um, think of the third princess who could not show herself from behind her, her blinds. Um, so since they could not go out, nature was brought in, in interior decoration, as you see in the lower right, um, screens, uh, kimono. But the forms of nature favored tended to be very small, uh, delicate, um, plant life mostly, flowers, uh, but also insects and birds. In short, members of, of the court appreciated elements of nature that were not challenging or threatening, and with which they could identify, finding in them reflections of themselves and their uh, sensibilities. A wild animal crossing through the imperial grounds was not 
a sight to bring a thrill, um, but rather terror, requiring divination of its meaning. Now, a lot has been made of the Japanese preface to the Kokin Wakashu, which takes nature as the source and inspiration for all human uh, creativity. And I, I mean, this is meaningful, but uh, quite frankly, this was not how waka poems were made. Waka poems were never about the primacy of nature, actually seeing and hearing things from nature and then expressing them in words, but rather it was about memorializing and then re-experiencing certain vaunted original um, experiences of nature, which were then made normative through their refashioning as cultural ar archetypes. Or to put this more simply, nature was only seen and heard when it precisely accorded with the refined courtly sensibility of beauty, elegance, and pathos. So accordingly, the range of animals that appear in waka, Japanese poetry, is extremely limited. So for example, in the supposedly nature-loving kokinshu, there is only one four-legged land animal referenced, the deer. In many cases, Animals are mentioned not because they are seen or heard, but rather simply because their names provided opportunities for sophisticated puns. So far from a direct transmission of an experience with nature, um, we can see here a focus entirely on human interests for which animals were only sometimes found convenient as temporal markers, mood makers, or wordplay. And really, it should come as no surprise when we turn to painting, court, court painting. Um, it's almost exclusively focused on the human realm. Nature is present and quite largely present, as you see on the uh, left side of, of this um, image. Um, here, uh, as elsewhere, mainly in uh, plant life with anything as active and intrusive as animals usually left out. And it shouldn't surprise you either that uh, one of the few animals that did receive special focus was the deer. Uh, the elegant form of the deer came to symbolize courtly refinement. Now, there is literary evidence that various birds figured as painted subjects in interior decoration, um, such as screen and panel painting or poetry cards but uh, these works do not survive. In most of the uh, scroll paintings, um, Yamato-e of the 12th and 13th century, you can catch glimpses of horses, oxen, dogs, and birds, um, but with the notable exception of one scroll devoted to the ox, um, generally these are only parts of larger human-focused scenes. One exception uh, in scroll paintings is the highly unusual Choju Giga, which we have a sample from in the show, um, where um, animals are entirely humanized. They're anything but really denizens of an independent nat natural realm. Uh, and I would also say that in court culture, a work like this was only possible because it was figured as a giga, a playful painting, um, being allowed to ignore the conventions. So it might be instructive at this point to look uh, at Buddhist painting, uh, because Buddhists form the conception for aristocratic conceptions of animal life. And we've heard a, a bit this morning um, about animals in Buddhism. Um, on the one hand, similar to the Choju Giga, you see in Nehanzu, or images of the Buddha's death, um, representatives of the animal kingdom acting exactly like human beings, 
mourning the loss of the enlightened one. But a stark contrast to that uh, are the Lokudo-e, and Lokudo are the six realms of rebirth that we heard about in two of the talks this morning. And here the realm of animals is one of the lower realms and the brutality of animals is emphasized. Um, such associations as these might have been reserved for serious contemplations at a temple and would have been out of place in the refined court setting. Um, but such a view of animals may help to explain some of the court's hesitations to include animals as, as subjects. Um, now, I've started with poetry and court culture as the courtly verse tradition actually functions as a kind of master code for Japanese culture. It deeply informs all of the arts, including the visual, for centuries. In many cases, what we might assume to be a direct representation of nature in painting is in fact a depiction of poetry, or at the very least, a depiction of nature structured according to the approach established by poetry. Um, so some examples include the quail, which always appears in deep grass, the warbler on a plum branch, um, and this is much later actually coming out of haiku, but the crow on the withered um, branch. I'll show the poem where that came from uh, later. So um, this comes straight out of poetry where certain animals are matched with felicitously matching materials and set within certain seasons of the year. Obviously, these animals did not only exist during those seasons, um, but that was the time of year that was felt to highlight the suggestive uh, properties of that animal. So I'm gonna leap a bit to uh, the Muromachi period. We're looking now at the 14th through 16th centuries. And here we do see animals become much better established as central subjects. Um, partly, I think, through the influence of China and bird and flower paintings um, that were deeply influential at this time. And I would also, I should add to this, although I don't have an example, that we saw great uh, examples this morning of the influence of tale literature on the development of animal depictions, which is the second major theme in this period. Um, so a much broader range of animals begins to enter. We see sparrows, egrets, ducks, swallows, and cranes among the birds, but also small animals such as rabbits, cats, and insects as the main uh, subject of, of the painting. The ink paintings of this time are also associated with the Zen aesthetic. And it's notable that certain animals become closely linked with this Buddhist sect at this time, um, mainly through reli religious parables, such as the monkey reaching for the moon in the water, or the reflection of the moon in the water, um, the ox herding pictures, um, or the riddle to, to catch a catfish with a gourd. Um, but animals really come into their own as grand subjects, I would say, um, with screen and panel painting. Um, in particular, the works of the Kano school, commissioned for the castles of powerful warlords. Here, uh, um, strong animals become emblematic of military power in works that are designed to impress viewers with majesty, opulence, and often just a little bit of threat. Um, fanciful creatures such as lion dogs, tigers, and dragons are seen, um, but also quite realistic depictions of earthier animals such as horses, um, closely associated with military power, and also the, the falcon and the hawk, which at this time 
really become symbols of the military elite who frequently bred them and appreciated their sharp eyes and abilities to attack. Now, as the main purpose of depictions like these was, was largely symbolic, it didn't matter whether they were drawn from a familiar, recognizable nature. In fact, rare otherworldly animal forces were probably preferable for expressing the unusual awe and might of a feudal warlord. A degree of naturalism and dynamism of posture and movement did lend these animals some of their impressive power. But it's important to note that the artists, the Kano school artists who, who drew these, while they may have observed nature and taken hints from it, when they actually created compositions, there was no such thing as sketching from a live model. For the most part, they painstakingly learned their craft by copying the work of a master and internalizing representations rather than copying from nature. Because of these methods, there was actually no distinction between observed natural animals and the imagined form that occupied these paintings. When your basis is artistic conventions and techniques, not the natural world, any difference between creatures of the forest and creatures of the mind is immaterial. Now, in the subsequent uh, Tokugawa period, a uh, culturally rich and varied era with prolonged peace and, and relative prosperity, supporting many branches of painting, that animal depiction really takes off. I would say the impetus comes for, for this from uh, many directions, um, including the development of a more scientific approach towards nature that I think we'll hear about in the next talk. But let me pick up again on the strand of poetry. Um, as I mentioned, poetry can provide a kind of master code for high culture. Um, initially, it was very much controlled and jealously guarded by the imperial court. But over time, poetry began to slip out of court control and involve other classes and earthier points of view. I won't go through the whole story, but this leads eventually to haikai poetry, what, what you may know as haiku. Um, in the Tokugawa period, haikai becomes a mass form. And while based on court poetry, its thematic content smashes all of the courtly conventions. Um, while haikai starts in a joking mode, it's raised into a serious art form in the 17th century by Matsuo Basho. Um, Basho's poem, poems touch on a wide range of animals and animal activities that are absolutely unthinkable from the courtly perspective. He writes about mosquitoes, leeches, sewer rats, wild dogs, cats in heat, uh, etc. And there are two examples there. Um, so it's easy today to overlook just how subversive and challenging these verses actually were in their time, substituting a relatively ordinary person's experiences and points of view for a medium that had until that time been reserved for aristocratic refinement. And when we look at some of the seasonal words used in haikai, we can see how broadly it extended the acceptable range of animals. Um, you see snake, jellyfish, mosquito. Um, while we might be tempted to think that this represented a direct experience of nature, it's important to see that the time of year still remains dominant. Obviously, these animals lived all year round, but their characteristics were tied to that seasonal moment conventionally felt to represent them. And in the 18th century, uh, correspondingly, I would say, we see animal depictions open up to a much more diverse range. 
Um, this is a time when woodblock printed painting manuals are produced that focus exclusively on animals and how to draw them. And they codified a new expanded range of animal imagery. Um, very quickly too, um, just as the deer became emblematic for uh, the court or um, fierce animals or falcons for warriors, um, some of the lower uh, status classes in the Tokugawa period find their symbols uh, in these new range of animals. Um, one is the, the mouse, um, largely neglected outside of tail literature, I'll say, um, but in, in uh, painting uh, for display, um, largely neglected before this time. The mouse became associated with abundance, so mice come to homes that have extra food. And so they were taken as a very positive symbol um, by the merchant class. And the mice on the right there, it's hard to tell, they're actually carrying gold coins. Um, now as a market opened up for hanging scroll paintings as home decoration, consumers could um, commission or select animal themes according to their identification with the human values and social levels they associated with that animal. And finally, um, in what I think is a, a truly radical shift um, for the, my theme today, by the very end of the 18th century and into the 19th, artists began to focus on nature itself. They actually began sketching from the natural world rather than simply copying the master's methods of depiction. So this was a revolutionary step in considering this relationship between man and nature in Japan as it placed nature first, making nature the basis for representation. And so I think in uh, animal paintings from this time, 19th century and into the 20th, um, you see much more naturalism um, as opposed to the various types of stylization that characterized most of the earlier animal depictions. So I'll conclude um, with some basic um, ideas. Um, I think it's fair to say that there was a felt or perceived unity of man and nature throughout the pre-modern period in Japan, um, but that the unity of that nature, uh, the nature of that unity uh, must be scrutinized. Specifically, it is not a unity of man accepting a wild, heedless, powerful, non-human nature as worthy of contemplation and acceptance, but rather a distinct humanization of nature, focusing only on its small controllable aspects that could be brought into the existing human order harmoniously without challenging it. And this applies to animals as well. Animals become subjects for paintings only when their aspects reflect meaningfully on human social and political realities. The animals in paintings are often emblematic of particular social classes or types, and in their display, they could speak for their human owners, professing their qualities, values, and ideals without uttering a sound. Ironically, it's not until the 19th century um, when deforestation had begun to limit the number of animals, perhaps driving many from secluded forest homes into proximity with human settlements, that artists actually began to focus on the animals in nature, trying to let them speak for themselves. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.